Bible together with me this morning will be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 17. We're continuing our study through Paul's letter to this church in Thessalonica. I greatly appreciate Rhonda stepping in this morning and doing the prayer concerns for me as my voice is uh, weak this morning. But uh, continue to, to lift her up in prayer. She's got a lot on her plate right now. Uh, just having finished uh, up preparing the wedding for her daughter and then a new job and starting at Clear Creek uh, Baptist Bible College. Most of us know that she is going back to school and so we support her and affirm her in that. But uh, just past week she called me and asked me for a little help. And uh, she said, I've got some, uh, some words here I'm trying to decipher. Can you help me with this? And a bunch of ology words. And she said, I've got to read this passage of Scripture and look for Christology, angelology, soteriology, eschatology. She said, what does all that stuff mean? And I said, well, you know, it's the doctrine of salvation, doctrine of end times. And she said, why don't they just say what it means? I said, I don't know. But, you know, by the time you finish up, all that stuff will be second nature. You'll you'll uh, know those uh, words backwards and forwards. But theologians, pastors, teachers typically enjoy studying theology. Uh, theology is the, uh, the study of God, uh, God's character, God's attributes, God's works. And so normally pastors, theologians are really into that. But for, for most folks, common folks, lay people, sometimes wonder, you know, all the ologies and all the doctrines, does it really matter? Does, does doctrine matter? Does theology make a difference? And I'm here to tell you, according to Paul this morning in our passage of Scripture, it is relevant, extremely relevant to life, you see, because what you believe greatly impacts how you live. And if your beliefs are off, then your behaviors will follow. And Paul, in writing to that church, wanted to make sure their, their behaviors and their life were on track with God. In order to do that, they had to make sure their doctrine, their theology was proper. And so Paul shows us this morning that you and I must find divine power for daily living by studying and applying biblical doctrines. You see, it's not enough just to learn stuff and put it in your head, but theology is meant to be practiced, and that is where it makes a difference. You and I can and should be thankful for theology. Let me invite you to stand with me this morning if you're able to. We do this out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. These words written by Paul in inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts, in every good work and word. Let's pray together. Father, we do rejoice this morning in who you are, what you've done for us in Jesus. 
We thank you, God, for the Word. We thank you that you give us instruction, you give us knowledge, so that we might apply this in our lives. And as we struggle, as that church did in Thessalonica, as we struggle with persecutions, afflictions, confusion, God, we are so thankful that your Word gives us something sure, something certain, something solid that we can do, as we sang earlier, stand on the promises because these promises are from God. Lord, we pray the Holy Spirit would now enlighten our minds, help us understand what is written, what it means, and how we might apply it in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the only thing worse than than hurting yourself is watching those you love in pain. And one of the ways that that is evident is when you have babies, you have infants, and, and they begin the teething process. And they are uncomfortable, which in turn makes you uncomfortable. You, you, you hurt for them, and you wish you could do something to alleviate their pain. Well, Paul was writing to what we might call a baby church. In Thessalonica, this was a church he had just founded recently, and they were cutting their teeth trying to figure out this Jesus thing and, and, and try to figure out how to live as, as Christians, born-again believers, in a fallen and a broken world. And so Paul, in writing to them to, to help them get on track, knowing that they needed comfort, Paul reminds them of some solid, true doctrines. And in light of what he just had written, if we go back and look a few verses in verse 10, and following, he talks about the deception of wickedness for all those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness but we should always give thanks to God for you. Paul is, is reminding them of the distinction between those who were lost and their outcome and those who are saved and what truly awaits Christians. He says, but on the contrary, we should always give thanks to God for you. Paul is praising God for what God has done what God is doing, and what God will do at the church there in Thessalonica. He is expressing gratitude to God as we ought to because of what God has done. And as Paul is trying to comfort them and encourage them, he points them to four doctrines that I want us to look at this morning that you and I should be thankful for as Christians. Four doctrines. First of all, be thankful for His election. Election. I'm not talking about politics. We, we've heard enough about the election over the last, I don't know, you know, 20 years or so. It's like all anybody wants to talk about on the news and on social media, the elections, the president, you're for him, you're against him, you're for him, you're against him, you love him, you hate him. It's just sickening to a degree. We're not talking about politics. We're talking about God's sovereign choice. God choosing souls to save. Now, when we think about election, there is a great deal of confusion and debate 
over this doctrine, especially as of late. Some will say, well, if God is sovereign in his election, then man plays no role in his salvation. And others would say, no, the Bible tells us we must have faith and we must repent. And so we choose our salvation. Now, which is true, and people are choosing sides on this and arguing against the other, but in reality, the Bible teaches both. It holds God's sovereignty and our responsibility in tension. We can't teach one doctrine and not teach the other. We can't side and choose, well, I believe this, and so I'm going to explain this away, which is typically what happens. We must hold to both, believe both, let Scripture say what Scripture says, and then leave it all up to God. Because I believe, depending on the passage of Scripture, it's written either from God's point of view, His sovereignty in choosing us, or it's written from man's point of view, our response to Him, and both are true. And I, and I hope that we see that in this Scripture today. First of all, speaking of His election, we see His motive to save us. In verse 13, God's motive. He, Paul says, we should thank God for you always, brethren, my fellow Christians, who are beloved by the Lord. Beloved by the Lord. When Paul talks about the Lord, typically it's, he's referring to Jesus. He said, Jesus loves you. We hear that a lot. and It's almost become cliche. But don't pass that over. Jesus, the Son of God, in the flesh, sinless Savior who came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross in your place did that because He loves you. You are beloved by the Lord. How do we know that we're beloved by the Lord? He loves us despite of us. Despite your sin, despite your rebellion, despite your, your human heart and its affinity for wickedness, in spite of all that, God demonstrates His love for you in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His motive to save us is His love for us. And how do we know He loves us? It says because God has chosen you. God has chosen you. Why would God choose you? You ever stop and think about that? Sometimes we're like, well, you know, of course God's going to choose me. You know, look at me, I'm a catch. You know, I'm not as bad as that person down the road or I'm not as bad as she is or he is. And Of course God would choose me. But in reality, God wouldn't choose you based upon your own merits. I hate to bust your bubble, but Scripture says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us deserve to be chosen. That's what makes election so amazing. That God has chosen you. And not only has God chosen you, He's chosen you from the beginning. From the beginning, all the way back. In reality, before you were even born, and Scripture says before the world was even created. Listen to the words of Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Just as He chose us in Him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, before God created the world, He chose you. You didn't even exist yet, but in the mind and the heart of God, He loved you, and His plan was to choose you that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption. Before you even created, God's destiny was to adopt you into His family 
as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Not according to your goodness, but his kind intention. His motive to save us is his divine love for us that has no explanation. Why would God love you? Why would God love me? He chose to do that. Praise God for that. His motive to save us is his love. His means to save us, Paul says in verse 13, chosen by God from the beginning for salvation. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit. Sanctification. That's none of them good theology words. It means to be set apart. It means to be made holy. To be made sacred. You see the root word sacred and sanctify. That before God created you, His desire was to set you apart. This fallen, sinful race of humanity, God says, I am going to choose that one. And He set you apart. And how God sanctifies us, Paul says, is by the Spirit. Through the work of the Holy Spirit. And now we have seen all three members of the Trinity here. God's design, His plan before the foundation of the world. The Father, He chose you. The Son came and died for you because He loves you. And now the Holy Spirit is taking this saving message and He is bringing it and applying it to your heart. We call this regeneration. Paul says you were dead spiritually in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. He regenerated you. How does that happen? Through the Holy Spirit. He's God's means to save us. Jesus said in John 3, 3, you must be born again. If you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You must be born anew. 1 John 5, 1 talks about those who have been born of God. How are we born again? Jesus talks about the Spirit moving. How are we born of God? Paul says it's through the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. In other words, you weren't good enough for God to save you, but according to His mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit comes upon you, brings you to life, awakens you, breathes, breathes life and breath into your spiritual lungs and wakes you up. Regeneration that comes from heaven, that comes from God, being born of God. God does that to us. Now, does that mean we have no role to play in this? No, because Paul was on to say, He's chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. That's His method to save us. His means is the Holy Spirit, regeneration. His method is our faith. That's our human response. That means God has done something to us. He has awakened us, and our response is to believe and trust in Him. That's what faith is, in the truth. He's already said that those who perish, in verse 11, they will believe what is false. But, via the Holy Spirit moving in your life, you will believe the truth. Not only will you believe the truth, verse 10 speaks about those who did not receive the love of the truth. Once you receive the truth, you will love the truth. That's the wonderful thing about regeneration. When God wakes you up and you finally see with true eyes, you will love the truth. 
that Jesus sacrificed his life to save you. You will be drawn to his glory and his beauty. And you will be drawn to his grace like a, like a moth to the flame. You will be drawn to Christ. And you will not only love the truth, but you will believe in the truth. You will have faith in the truth. That's our response. Now, I was thinking about what kind of analogy could I use to help us understand that. And I know that this is not completely a perfect analogy, but I think this is helpful. Any of you all ever have a car battery that died on you? How many of you all have ever been somewhere and you just turn the ignition and suddenly it just won't start? You know, I think most of us have been there, if not all of us. So what do we do when our car battery doesn't work? We find somebody to give us a jump. And so a car that is actually working will pull up and we'll connect cables to, to both vehicles. And once the cables are connected, guess what happens? The power, the juice, goes from what is actually running and it goes to the dead battery. Once it do, it gives it enough juice to wake up. And if you've ever been there and experienced that, you know that as soon as you hook the cables up and the juice is there, your car doesn't automatically start, does it? That'd be kind of amazing to see. But in my experience, typically what happens, you connect the cables, and then what do you got to do? You got to turn the ignition. To me, regeneration from the Spirit is connecting the cables to us, and God sends the juice into our hearts, which enables us then to turn the ignition via faith and repentance to activate that power that's there. I know that's not a perfect analogy, but I think that's helpful. The Holy Spirit is that jumper cable that connects to our dead hearts. And then and only then can we activate that power through faith and repentance. So be thankful for His election. He chose as Christians to send His Holy Spirit into your heart to awaken you and bring life, which enabled you then to respond to Him in faith and repentance. Be thankful that God chose you in spite of your sin. But secondly, we should be thankful for our glorification the outcome of God choosing us is God's completed work in us, our future state as believers. As Jesus, who died and was raised with a glorified body, so too we, Paul says, Jesus is the first fruits of what is to come. As believers, we likewise will be raised one day, on the last day, as Paul's been talking about, with a glorified body, like Jesus, to live on a glorified earth as heaven and earth come together, never to be separated again. It's our glorification. Be thankful for that. Why? Because, first of all, you can have a blessed hope. You can have a blessed hope. Hope is a wonderful thing. We have people that are driven to suicide because they have no hope. We have marriages that fail because people lose hope. We have folks who choose an abortion because they have no hope. You see, once you lose hope, it drives you to do things you wouldn't normally on an ordinary circumstance do. Hope is a powerful thing. We all need hope in this fallen world. And Paul points to our glorification. Verse 14, It was for this he called you through our gospel. By the way, that's the only way God calls you. He chooses you before the foundation of the world, but it is through the gospel. It is through the message that Jesus loves you and died for you and rose again. It is through that good news that God calls you. 
His calling is divine, it's from Him, but the vehicle He uses is our speaking and sharing the good news. Our hope. We share our hope. And Paul says, we came to you and gave you the good news. And he says that God called you through that. That's the only way we are called. God's saving power comes through the message. It's not through the creativity of the one speaking. It's not through your thoughtful, diagrammed outline, your presentation it's to the power. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. It's the gospel. All you've got to do is just share the good news. Jesus loves you, died for you, rose again to forgive you of your sins. Trust in Him. Surrender to Him. You will be saved. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to share our hope with others. And if we share that gospel God calls people through that. It's not through, again, your cleverness and your wit and your charisma, your intelligence. It's the gospel that saves. He can and does use anybody who shares that. Let me encourage you in doing that because you bring hope to people. He called you through our gospel to give people hope. By the way, I heard one person say it like this. Sharing your faith is no more than one beggar telling another beggar where to go and find bread. That's all you got to do. Folks, you, you're a beggar and you found bread. You found the bread of life. And now what you do in sharing your faith, you just tell others who are in the same condition that you were, hey, I found bread. I found Jesus. You share that. And whether they respond or not, that's not on you. We are called to share our faith and share our hope and you can have a blessed hope which leads to the fact that you can have a beautiful home. Beautiful home. Now, we've been having cottage prayer meetings in some of y'all's homes over the past year. Y'all have beautiful homes. And that's not what Paul's talking about in this. not what I mean by this. I'm not saying, well, you know what? I've been planning on remodeling the kitchen and I've been planning on putting some new flooring in the bathroom. That's awesome. The gospel is going to give me a remodeled home. That's not what we're talking about. A beautiful home, we're talking about heaven. We're talking about glory. Paul says, it was for this he called you through our gospel, that the reason God called you is that you may gain. In other words, something you didn't have, but now you, you gain it. Now it's given to you. That you may gain what? The glory the, the weight, the splendor, the beauty, the power. You may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only glory there is, folks. God's called you through the gospel so that you would gain the glory of Jesus. Glorification. You would have a brand new body, a brand new home of heaven, a brand new future, a brand new hope, a brand new purpose. God has called you to give you hope and to give you a home. A beautiful home. As we study heaven, it's beautiful because of a presence and an absence. A presence. We're reunited with loved ones. Boy, isn't that good. Isn't that good news. Believers, family members, loved ones who've passed and gone on to be with Jesus, their presence is in heaven. And we get to be with them again. But not only their presence, but the presence of God. 
the presence of our Savior, beloved by the Lord, to the point He died for you. His presence is in heaven. And we get to see Him. We get to hug Him. We get to fall down at His feet and worship Him. Heaven is a beautiful home because of a presence, but also an absence. What is not there? What is not there is sin and its consequences. Death, suffering, sickness, depression, hopelessness, all of the, the, the symptoms of sin are gone. They're gone. No more sin in heaven. All of our hope is focused on the fact that because of Jesus and what He has done for us, we have His glory to look forward to. We ain't there yet. But we're gaining it. It's promise. We're standing on the promises of God. We have the hope of glory to motivate us and encourage us. Some of you all have heard we've had a very difficult week in our home. Wednesday night, we had one of our cats die, pass away. Had to bury him Wednesday night. 36 hours later, our other cat died. So within 48 hours, we had to bury both of our cats and have funerals for them. Cats that's been with us, one for eight years, one for three years, lived in our homes, become a part of our lives, just attached to us, different personalities, just the constant that was there as our children grew up with them, suddenly gone. So needless to say, shed a lot of tears this week. I think I cried more than, than the kids did, you know, just weeping over that. But as we had funerals for both of our cats, and some of y'all may think that's odd, but sorry about your luck. We had funerals for our cats, and I, I read in Job chapter 1, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all that happened to Job, he never sinned against God. Never blamed God. And so as we were brokenhearted, we worshipped. Why? Because we've got glory to look forward to. One day, we're not going to have to worry about pain. We're not going to worry about separation and death and sickness. We've got the promise of God in heaven all the suffering's gone. And every pain you have experienced or you are experiencing now or you're going to experience in this life, every pain is temporary. As a Christian, get that, all suffering is temporary. We have a beautiful home to look forward to because of what Christ has done because God's called you for that purpose. We have hope. Thank God for glorification. Thank Him for the hope of heaven and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ that awaits us who believe now. Praise His holy name. Be thankful for His election. Be thankful for our glorification. Be thankful, thirdly, for His revelation that God has graciously revealed Himself to us. How do we know any of this? His election, our future glorification, how do we know any of this? Because of His revelation. He's revealed to us the truth. We see in verse 15, first of all, God's intentions. He's revealed His intentions for us. What was God's intention for that church? Verse 15. So then, so then, based on what Paul just said, 
God called you from eternity past. He called you to give you glory. So then, here's what you need to do. He gave the indicative. He indicated this is what God's done. Now comes the imperative, the command. This is what you've got to do. Church, do this. Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. Remember that church was struggling. There were people coming, not only persecution from the outside. That was bad enough. But then there was false teaching inside the church. There was, there was disruption in the fellowship. And Paul says, stand firm. Don't get pushed off of your foundation. Stand firm and hold. Grab on to grasp. Hold on to the traditions. Stability in the face of false teaching. Go back to verse 2. Remember what Paul said. Don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit, a spirit, a message, or a letter as if from us to the effect the day of the Lord has come. Verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Paul says, don't get it twisted. Remember what you were taught and don't shift. Don't back away. Why? Because it's the Word of God. God's intentions for us is to hold fast to His Word. Why? Because of, secondly, God's inspiration to us. Verse 15. Paul says, Whether you have heard it by word of mouth, in other words, when I was with you, I taught you verbally, in person, I spoke the truth to you, stand firm and hold to that, whether it's by word of mouth or by letter from us. What has been written? Scripture. All Scripture is what? God breathed. God's inspiration. So God's revelation, God intends for us to live a certain way and to hold on to certain truths. And how do we know those truths? Because God has inspired those truths for us. Through what Paul spoke, through what Paul wrote, what the apostles and the prophets have written as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, we have that. And as the Bible speaks, God speaks. God has revealed these things to us. All Scripture is God-breathed. If you've ever been to a, a tour of Mammoth Cave, some of y'all maybe have been there, part of the tour, they bring you down to the depths of the cave and then they, they tell you, okay, we're going to turn out all the lights. We're going to let you see absolute darkness. And they count down, turn off the lights, suddenly, boom, you can't see your hand like right in front of your face. It's nothing but black and darkness. And your eyes will never adjust to that. There's no light. And thankfully, they don't leave you in that condition and say, bye. You know. Well, they, do. They, they, they flick the light switch back on. That's what Scripture is to us. David says it's a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. God has not left you in the dark. Who is God? What does He expect of me? Why all this pain? Why do I hurt so bad? Is there any hope? God's not left you in that darkness. He's given you the light of His revelation. He has revealed His truth to you. Be thankful. Be so thankful that you've got this book called the Bible. It is God's Word, His revelation, His light 
to you in this dark, dark world. You got truth. You got light because of God's grace. Finally, be thankful for our sanctification. There's that word again. Being set apart. Being made more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. God does that to you. You might have heard it said before, God loves you just as you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. God loves you and wants you to become more like Jesus. Sanctification is that process of God working in and through you to shape you and to make you into something else. How does that take place? First of all, it's based on our covenant with God. Our covenant, our, our faithful contract with God. He says in verse 16, Paul goes into a prayer. Paul makes petition here. Intercession. As we prayed for others a while ago, prayed for others' pain and their situations, Paul prays for that church. And via Scripture, he's praying for us. He's praying for you and me. Here's what he's praying. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, don't pass that up, they're equal. They're equal. Talking about ology a while ago, that's Christology. This is high Christology. It shows us Jesus of Nazareth is on equal footing with God the Father. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, a dual source. And speaking of God our Father, Paul says, who has loved us. We talked about that a while ago. And given us, what? Eternal comfort. Not just comfort for now, but comfort forever. Eternal comfort and good hope. Oh, we need some hope. We need some good hope. We need some good hope today. God's already given that to you. He has loved us and has already given us. Perfect tense. It's happened in the past. The effects continue. What He has done, He's loved you and He's still loving you. He's given you comfort and hope. He's still giving it to you for eternity. Eternal comfort and good hope. How? By grace. He's given me comfort and hope because I deserve it, by golly. No. No. Uh-uh. He's given you eternal comfort and good hope by His grace. It's a free gift. God says, I love them so much. God entered into this covenant with us, binding upon not our faithfulness, because if it was, the covenant would be broken multiple times every day. It's based on His faithfulness. His covenant with us. God initiated this relationship with you. But also our sanctification is, is our comfort from God. Verse 17. He says, God has given us eternal comfort. He has given us good hope by grace. And now, present tense, may He now comfort and strengthen your hearts. The comfort that comes to you now really has already been given to you. It's just applied in the present situation in the current circumstance that you are in. It's already there. It's already been given. He's praying that God, based on what God's already done via His covenant relationship with that church, the reality of God's covenant now, I pray God would apply that to you now. I pray He would comfort and strengthen your hearts. You need some comfort this morning. You need your heart strengthened today. By golly, I know I do. As I studied this passage the last few days, it just really hit home. 
God comforts and strengthens our hearts based on His covenant relationship that goes back to eternity past. My goodness. God loved me before He created the world. He's given me eternal comfort and good hope. And now He's applying that to my heart. Right, It's kind of like a soldier about ready to go into battle. Facing an overwhelming enemy. Facing insurmountable odds. And they don't know... I don't know if we're going to make it through this battle or not. They need to be encouraged. They need their hearts strengthened as they march into battle. And a good general comes in and motivates and pumps them up and gets them ready for the fight. God does that for us. When our knees begin to shake and our hearts begin to quiver and we just don't know if we can go one another step, God comes and comforts us and strengthens our hearts to do what? Finally, our commission from God. The reason why God gives us strength and comfort and He he loves us so much and by His grace does this for us so that we can have strength in our hearts for every good work. Strength for good works. He's given us strength to, to do what we're called to do. What are we called to do? The Great Commission. Go and make disciples and teach them all that God's commanded us. We see souls saved through, through, through sharing the gospel. We are to help them grow in Christ-likeness. Good works. And every good work, our ministry, as we minister good works and as we give comfort to others, we do that out of the abundance of the comfort God's given us. One of the reasons why you suffer, one of the reasons why you go through pain and heartache is so that you will understand the grace and the comfort of God so that when time comes and someone else needs that hope, someone else needs that comfort, you're more qualified and equipped based on your circumstance to speak truth and comfort into their life. He gives you strength for good works, mercy, ministry, and helping others. But most importantly, our commission from God, He gives you strength for gospel words, for sharing the good news. In every good work and word, message, God's desire for us is evangelism, sharing our faith. We've already talked about that. God's given you a hope. And God's plan for you is share that hope with others because there's people out there right now, church, that are hopeless. There's people out there right now at the end of the rope. And some of us know them, and some of us know them very dearly. And they need hope. We've got that hope. Why would we not give them hope? Aren't you glad you have good hope? Why would you not give that to somebody else? You really hate them that bad? You don't want to give them hope? No, we love them, and so we give them hope. What's hope? We give them Jesus. May God strengthen you in your suffering from persecution, false teachers. May God comfort you and give you strength and heart for every good work and word. God will motivate you to share your faith. So I think we can be thankful this morning for election, for glorification, for revelation, for sanctification. And you and I can find divine power for daily living. Only as we study these things and then we apply these things. We put them in our heads so that God moves it down into our hearts. I think theology is good. Theology is right because it leads us. True theology leads you to worship. If you're studying the doctrines of God and you're not led to fall on your knees and praise God, something's wrong with your heart or your theology. True theology leads to worship and praise and adoration to God. 
Theology makes a difference. I came across a Peanuts comic, you know, Snoopy and Charlie Brown. In this particular comic, Linus and Lucy are looking out the window and it's pouring down rain. And Lucy says, Oh no, what will we do if it rains so much the whole earth floods? Linus responds, The whole earth will never flood. Because in Genesis chapter 9, God promises He'll never flood the earth again. And the rainbow is the sign of God's promise. <coughs> then Lucy responds, Boy, you sure have taken a load off of my mind. And then Linus' response is, Sound theology has a way of doing that. That's what Paul's telling that church there. The rain and the storms of persecution and false teaching and the confusion of the end times has really done a number on that church. And Paul applies the salve of sound theology to get them thinking right, reorient their thinking so that their hearts and their lives would follow suit. Now tell me you shouldn't be thankful for theology. Because what we have learned today, God is sovereign and believers are secure. He's chosen you from eternity past. And your salvation is not based on your goodness. It's based on His faithfulness and His power to keep you saved. Be thankful for theology because God, who has begun a good work in you, He will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, our hope is rooted in your power. 